0: Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar.
1: Hello, it's Peter Oborn from a balmy Wiltshire. The cold spell has ended and the snowdrops are peeping out of the soil.
0: Hello, it's Richard Heller in south-east London. It's particularly balmy, it's rather damp. We've got our own um, crop of snowdrops battling their way through the usual fetid air of uh, southeast London, but um, it's not a bad day overall. It's always a very good day to welcome our guest, Arunov Sengupta. Uh, He's uh, coming back to us for a second innings. He's coming back to us to talk about his wonderful book, Elephant in the Stadium. Elephant in Stadium uh, celebrates India's very first test victory in England in 1971, which also won them a series over here for the very first time. Um, but into that book he's weaved a tremendous amount of history and he's also weaved a tremendous amount of commentary on present issues of racism and exclusion in, um, in cricket. Uh, it's a, quite a short book, but it's a very, very full read and there's lots to talk about welcome, Arunov.
2: Hello, it's great to be back here again.
0: Arun, your book um, picked up many glowing reviews, as it should, shortlisted as the Cricket Writers' Club Book of the Year. It was uh, named by The Times as um, one of the best sports books of the year, and indeed the best cricket book of the year, 2022. But there were some dissenting voices, weren't there, as well? And in particular, you were Take to task uh, for daring to write about um, issues like colonialism and
2: its legacy, uh, <laughs> as well as the cricket, weren't you? So, yeah, as you said, there were a lot of glowing reviews. There were a lot of very good reviews and charitable ones uh, from a lot of uh, different quarters. But uh, there was this one uh, dissenting voice uh, which said that uh, he probably dwells a bit too much on colonialism. But uh, at the same time, what he wrote was, the point about colonialism has already been made, hasn't it? Which I find is quite uh, quite objectionable at so many different levels. One is the very apparent reluctance to know about history. You cannot say that this history has been written and you don't need to write anything about it. It doesn't happen that way. Um, The history of colonization goes back 300, 400 years and the decolonization has taken place only about 50 years or so. And uh, you cannot say that uh, the entire history of decolonization has been written already. And it is also kind of dictating what should be written about and what should not be written about. Now, uh, the atrocities of colonialism, I don't think it was in the curriculum still very recently. More people came to know about uh, evils or the different atrocities when the statues of Churchill were defaced and all that, rather than studying it in their own curriculum. Um, Mainly Tudor, 1066, uh, the British hand in abolition of slavery, and then the two world wars. And people don't uh, really learn about uh, things like uh, the Opium War or the Boer War, the, the hand of the British in uh, implementing the concentration camps in South Africa, uh, the Marmodee Billion or the Amritsar, and even uh, Amritsar massacre, or even the Briggs Plan in Malaysia so uh, people don't t- tend to know about this and when you start writing about it you say that uh, the point is already been made uh, that's not it and secondly you are talking about a domain which is cricket writing and every year you get hundreds of hagiographies of gardas and trumper again and again and they are all hailed as uh, like important literature and ha- haven't the point about these things been made so um, that's something which was um, didn't really sit well with me. I have had this recent experience of a British family coming to visit us, and uh, I was taking them around uh, the World War II spots in Amsterdam. And uh, there was this uh, these parents, and there were these two kids, and. Uh, Because I was from India, one of the kids asked me that uh, was India affected by the Second World War? And immediately the father, he said, I don't think so. And then I had to explain that uh, about 2.5 to 3 million Indian soldiers actually uh, fought for the British Army. And secondly, uh, I was born in Calcutta. And uh, when the Japanese had run over Singapore and uh, Burma and they were bombing Calcutta, people had to evacuate from there and go to, into... My father was born in Tabanga in Bihar because uh, my grandmother, while she was pregnant, had to be taken there because of the bombing threat. And also because of the chance of uh, Japan um, like uh, coming over and taking over Calcutta, there was a denial policy because of which... Uh, about 3 million Bengalis died. And uh, when I was talking about this, the, all this was news to the father. But the kids, one of them said that, are you talking about the Bengal famine? So, which tells me that in the recent times, this has made into consciousness, into the curriculum. But uh, the previous generations, this is a, probably the first generation which is learning about it. And the previous generations, the father is in his 40s. Um, much younger than the reviewer in question, but he didn't know about all these things. Mm.
1: Of course, the, I think during the Oval Test in 1946, in, when India was Nawab of India was playing, the Calcutta riots were actually taking place, which several yes. thousand people were killed. And so it really is part of the whole story, isn't it?
2: Yes, absolutely. And, and that has been covered in detail out there as well.
1: And so your book is about the 1971 tour, which Richard and I remember quite vividly. We the, of course, the secession of, of Bangladesh, um, terrible war going on between India and Pakistan, a civil war and a spilling right over borders. You have Edward Heath's immigration bill in Britain, which was pretty well a racist bill Um, How much of that was a context for the 71 series?
2: A lot of the people who went to the matches, the Indian community or even the Pakistani community uh, who were living here, and a lot of the people from East Pakistan who were immigrants out here, they had concerns about uh, the results uh, results of the bill and uh, how they were going to, how it was going to affect their family members, whether they were going to be able to join them, or whether they would be able to stay on in England uh, or in UK. So all these things uh, did matter to all the people who were staying in England at that time.
0: Did that spill over into the response to um, India's victory? Was that, a, um, in any way, was uh, that uh, worry about the immigration bill? That um, you know, that sense of identity, uh, sense of. Um, Being targeted by the immigration bill, that um, generate just a little extra response to India's victory in in England's
2: home. Yes, uh, we should remember that this was the first time India won anything in England. Uh, All the previous tours they had been routed, and especially uh, after independence, they had lost all but one of the test matches. And that test match also they would have lost if uh, it hadn't rained. So they had come with a really lousy record. They were not. uh, taken seriously by the press, even by the uh, different uh, organizations or the countryside, even by the uh, local Indian supporters, they were not taken very seriously. And uh, uh, not only in England, the immigration bill, obviously there was uh, this niggling um, issue out there. And uh, yes, it is a sport. And at the end of the day, it's just a cricket match. But uh, the euphoria that the people uh, experienced, that had a extra impetus because of the situation. And also we must remember that at that point of time, it was just 24 years after independence. And uh, there were a lot of other things that were going on. So uh, there was the war about to begin in back in India, and uh, nothing quite uh, sets the nationalist uh, spirit on fire than a war. And apart from that, uh, in the global view, India was not that important nation and every political analyst at that time, they did not quite uh, think that India was going to survive or uh, there would be balkanization and so on. Even when India were playing uh, Warwickshire during the tour, uh, there was uh, John Pilger, the journalist, who was interviewing Mrs. Gandhi back in India And one of the questions he asked was uh, that uh, the British uh, people still congratulate themselves uh, on having exported a Westminster model of democracy to India. But do you think uh, because of the hunger, the poverty, the common Indian person really thinks of himself as a part of the democracy? Which was a fair question because of the economic status of India, uh, like uh, hunger, poverty, everything was true. But again, from the Indian point of view, it was quite odd that uh, the British still congratulated themselves for exporting a Westminster model of democracy. Because, as far as they were concerned, uh, from their point of view, it was a subjugated nation who had earned their freedom after a lot of uh, freedom fighting or uh, protests and so on, I've had a long history of subjugation. So uh, the points of view varied, and the Indians were not taken seriously. There was an inferior complex that was built into the psyche because of the long history of colonialization. And uh, that that win really uh, proved to a lot of people that India could actually stand with the rest of the world. Uh, They were becoming a force on their own.
0: India was, as you say in your book, India was going through quite a lot of domestic problems at the time, wasn't it, in 1971. The economy was rather stalled. Uh, A lot of the hopes of, perhaps the hopes of um, independence seemed to be stalled. Um, How how did people respond to the victory in India at the time? Did it give an uplift to to national morale? And did the government try to exploit it, Indira Gandhi's government?
2: Uh, Yes, I mean, uh, both this win and also the win that came just before that in West Indies. Uh, these were uh, the first major series wins outside India. Uh, they had won in New Zealand uh, before that in 1967, but uh, everybody used to win in New Zealand. Uh, they were not really a force to reckon with. So um, so these two wins uh, in West Indies and in England, these were really uh, things taken very seriously. And also one should remember that uh, India had come back from West Indies after winning the series, but before they went to England, the ex-ricketers, the journalists, no one gave them much of a chance, even though they had uh, this uh, result to show for the West Indian uh, result to show. And as I keep saying, that uh, there was this situation in the uh, in East Pakistan, which was volatile, and uh, the country was going through a lot of uh, like. Uh, Emotional uh, and uh, a lot of uh, political uh, currents—the furor because of the war that was going to break out, and also the political conditions. The elections had just been held, so all this uh, rolled into it, and the euphoria of the win got uh, merged with the nationalism that was coming up and uh, the identity of the Indians as uh, some as people to be taken seriously, this is also there. And Indira they did play, uh, did actually try to use it. Uh, the players, uh, when they were uh, flying back to India, the plane was diverted to Delhi for a ceremony to uh, honor the cricketers who had uh, come back with this result. Uh, she knew, she knew that it was a very important victory, and especially in England, it was an important victory. And that was also the uh, time when India was uh, canvassing for um, the world opinion because of the uh, relationship with Pakistan. And that had a lot of intricacies with uh, the Nixon government trying to woo China and Pakistan being the conduit for that. Uh, so um, there were a lot of uh, intricacies there. So. Uh, Not that uh, the cricket played a big role in this politics, but uh, yeah, it definitely did a lot for the national psyche.
1: Very interesting. So what you're talking about here is a new sensibility. And one of the figures who uh, is often forgotten here is Ajit Wadika, the captain of India. And uh, notoriously, India had had immense difficulty with its captains. There was a huge amount of... Residual, how should one say it, establishment snobbery in the game. Um, the Nawab of Patardi, great figure, great, but he was sort of from the, well, very much from the princely tradition which had governed um, Indian cricket right back to the days of empire. And so Wadika is a much more sort of middle class, out of the establishment, professional figure. Is that a, and somehow symbolized a different kind of India. Is that, is that a fair comment? Uh,
2: Yes, uh, it is definitely a fair comment. Uh, If you look at the long history of Indian connections with England, uh, the first uh, major tour of uh, India to England was in 1911, and that was led by the Maharaja of Patiala. And uh, that was not a test tour, but the first uh, representative tour. And that was led by Maharaja Patiala, who was not really that good a cricketer, but he was a very, very important person from from the British point of view because he was an important prince. Uh, even before that, if you look at the scorebooks of uh, Sussex, the early scorebooks of Sussex, when Ranji started playing there. The first few scorebooks uh, record him as Mr. K.S. Ranjit Singh, which is the way a gentleman cricketers, amateur cricketers were always uh, recorded. After a couple of matches, Mr. K.S. Ranjit Singh becomes Kumar Sri Ranjit Singh. The Mr. is taken out because Kumar denoted prince. And as soon as you are a prince, that puts you at par with the gentleman cricketer in England. So, prince. The uh, prince meant he is a gentleman cricketer, and that was in the uh, way it was stereotyped. The princely uh, figures were stereotyped in England. That's uh, part of the ornament- ornamentalization, the David Canadine's and Stern. Now, uh, if you look at it, in 1906, uh, Lord Harris said that uh, the Indians have long arms and a quick eye, but they don't have the equanimity of the Anglo-Saxon to become great cricketers. And Lord Harris said that after having watched the entire career of Ranji, one of the best batsmen to play for England till then. And that was because uh, to him, Ranji was a prince. That's my reading of it. To him, Ranji was a prince. And that didn't equate with the common Indian person. That was a completely different ballgame altogether. So uh, the subsequent tours that India had, uh, 1932... It was uh, Porbandar, Maharaja Porbandar, who led the side, but he had the uh, like decency to step down as captain because, uh, as we know, that the number of runs he got in the tour was less than the number of Rolls Royce he won. Woned, no? <laughs> so One of
1: um, my favourite statistics. It's yeah. not <laughs> <Yes>. So
2: <laughs> and uh, he, the Kanchan Das of Lim- Limdi, who was the uh, vice captain, he had an injury. That's why quite. Uh, like deservingly, and Naidu became the captain of the inaugural test match of uh, India. But again, Naidu was a captain of uh, Holkar Army, which was a standing army of the princely state. He was uh, employee of the Maharaja of Holkar. Uh, in uh, 1946, Vijay Merchant was the like top cricketer. Uh, I have uh, skipped the 1936 tour, which we all know, Vizi, v- Maharaja Vijay, Maharaja of Vijayanagaram, he was the captain. And he, again, uh, he scored very few runs at a abysmal average. But he was toasted in the different uh, gatherings, even by the British prime minister as the splendid captain of India. <laughs> so uh, in 1946, again, you see uh, Vijay Merchant was the primary like the best cricketer of India at that time, along with Hazare and some others. Now for senior iftikhar ali khan pataudi he had taken a break from cricket after after 1935 uh, th- or so he had played very few first class matches but he came back and played a couple of first class matches didn't really succeed but he was named the captain of the indian cricket team because it was always very important that a prince or a erstwhile prince uh, led the team um, again, 1952, it was uh, Hazare, who was again, uh, he was not a prince himself, but he was patronized by the Maharaja of Devas, and uh, later on the Maharaja of uh, Baroda. So they even got Clary Grimmett to uh, coach him. You know? So uh, again, when uh, 1959, we see, in spite of there being cricketers like Pali Umrigar and so on, it was Dutta Gaikward who became the captain. So, and 67, uh, obviously, Pataudi. And when 1967, Pataudi was the captain, um, the Indian team, when they reached and they started uh, their first training session, it was uh, published in the papers that uh, the Indians uh, start practicing without the noob because Patadi had laryngitis or something like that. He missed the practice, but he instructed his men. And that was something that the newspapers uh, picked on. Like the noob is not there, but the uh, but they're still practicing this. Uh, it was a newsworthy item that Indian nawab, they may be lousy at cricket, the entire team, but they they are they led by a nawab that uh, captured the public imagination, that captured the newsprint, and uh, that was how they were projected. So even if uh, Pataudi was no longer the nawab in 1970, even his privy purse, that was the stipend that uh, the Indian government gave to the while princely states, that was withdrawn just before the 1971 tour. But I'm sure if he had come, he would have come as Mansur Ali Khan, not as Nawab of Pataudi. But even then, the newspapers would have called him the erstwhile Nawab, and that would have been a story. But here, Wadekar, an out-and-out commoner, who is not a prince by any stretch of imagination and not even uh, like uh, patronized by any prince, uh, that was a completely different... Common, common man, uh, in in charge of India, that was a different India altogether. It's a middle class India.
0: Now you make the point um, in your book very powerfully, Owen, that, um, that that Indian tour of 1971 under Wadikar, the middle this middle class figure, gets almost no press coverage, even though it's no. more successful, in, in, even in county match, it's more successful in county matches than any of its predecessors. Um, but it doesn't fit into the box of being, does it? Of being led by a, a prince or a princely figure. So it's just, it's just
2: kind of written off, isn't it? It is not even given a small newspaper article or announcement. You just have to look at the today's matches, and there is India playing Middlesex. That's that's just that one-line announcement in the papers. And there was no coverage of the, like, uh, I'm not even talking about uh, Ashes when there would be features uh, by different ex-cricketers and uh, Gabby Allen and all that uh, way, way before the tour. But even uh, a team like uh, Pakistan, uh, they got some amount of press before they started their first match. But India was written off because they had never, never really done anything in England. Pakistan, at least, they had won in 1954. Uh, Fazal Mahmood bowling them to victory, but India had never done anything, and there there was no Nawab to prop them up. And uh, Nawab of Pataudi is not only a Nawab; he is also Oxford. So that also played into it. He checked all the boxes. You
0: know? yes.
2: And <laughs> Sussex,
1: like Ranji, he played for Sussex too, didn't he? Yes, so, yes, you know, part of some what seems an eternal tradition at that. Yeah. One of the, do you know, I was in um, Washington in 1971, I was 13 or 14 years old with my <laughs> parents. So I remember going into a little grocery shop somewhere in Washington and, uh, I, I, and having a chat with a man behind the counter who was an Indian. And he suddenly told me that India had beaten England. And it, it was absolutely. I, I, I still absolutely, there. It was. We both celebrated. You know, I was really pleased for India, and I was a bit shocked. But and he was absolutely joyful. It's it's a fun. It's it's amazing that um, sort of fifty years later, that one can still remember these things.
0: I already mentioned coverage of the Ashes. Uh, you compared the coverage of this tour, nineteen seventy-one, with coverage of all Ashes tours, and that's a big theme in your book isn't it it's it's Anglo-Australian encounters absolutely dominate cricket literature at the expense of um you know coverage of Asian uh, encounters with Asian countries in spite of the hundreds of millions of um, Asian cricket supporters um is it just still the fact that books on the ashes Anglo-Australian um cricket sell more copies than books on asian cricket or do you think there's a deeper seated sort of bias in 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 cricket history writing that reflects this
2: okay uh let me start with the story from my early cricket following like uh, when i got interested in cricket books so i was reading at the age of nine i remember i was reading uh farewell to cricket by don bradman and there he was describing the 1938 tour and uh, the trend Bridge stressed, he says that Leonard Hutton, he called him Leonard Hutton instead of Leonard Hutton, Leonard Hutton and Dennis Compton, playing their first tests got a century each. Now, mm-hmm. for me, it was quite surprising because uh, I looked at the wisdom, the record books and saw, uh, saw that uh, Hutton, Compton, both had made their debuts uh, in the previous uh, summer against New Zealand. Uh, so it was definitely not their first test. But uh, when, years later, it made sense to me that Bradman was talking about the first test in Australia, that was uh, all that mattered you know, uh, at that time. And in 1938, the fourth test at Oval, uh, Hutton uh, went past, or Hutton made 364. That was the world record score at that time. All the newspapers, most of the newspapers reported that Hutton had gone past Bradman Bradman's 334 at Leeds uh, uh, 1930. And that incidentally was not the world record. The world record was 336 by Hammond, which was again scored against New Zealand on the way back from the borderline tour. So so at that time, the test cricket was quite synonymous with uh, uh, ashes and huge amount of books were written about ashes. Now, um, eight years down the line or even more, we still have Brad Hogg saying that uh, Ashes will capture the public imagination much more than any test championship can do, which made sense in 1930 when England and Australia were the most two, two most powerful teams of the world. But now it, it really doesn't. And um, I also see uh, some things like uh, when England were in India the last time uh, recently, um, they lost 3-1, the series, and uh, they had like done the rotation of the players. So rotating rotation policy, rotating the players. And Michael Vaughan had not been very pleased. And he said that if England rotates the players against Australia, that would be the end of Test cricket. Mm. Now, India was the number one side of the world at that time. And it does not make objective sense because uh, you rotate your players against the number one side of the world, it's not, a big deal, but if you rotate them against Australia, it's blasphemy. So uh, so that sort of mentality is still there. And I make the point of uh, 1953 Ashes, coronation Ashes, huge amount of hype uh, because of coronation and because of Hassett's Steam coming over. And um, it was a five test series, which was uh, one-one-zero by the English. And um, it has gone down as one of the most exciting series. I don't think it was. Uh, I don't think uh, people really enjoy Trevor Bailey blocking everything and then bowling down the leg side. you know. So uh, I don't think that was one of the most uh, thrilling series, but uh, it has gone down in uh, public imagination as one of the most uh, hyped and most uh, thrilling series. Uh, just the previous winter, India had toured West Indies for the first time in history. And it was a great meeting of people because there were endangered laborers, Indian endangered laborers who had migrated to the West Indies 100 years earlier. And they were. it was for the first time that they were seeing uh, Indian cricketers coming and playing there. And the Indian team were extremely popular and they played brilliant cricket. The cricket was again, five test series ending one zero. There were 13 books written about the Ashes series, not one about the Indian tour of West Indies. So, Yes, there is a skew, and there is still a skew. And uh, historically, it has been the Anglo-Australian writers who write more about the game. And I make the point about language in the book as well. And uh, that's uh, that maybe we'll uh, talk about later. But uh, even now, you see, both of you have written books about Pakistan and, uh, say, uh, Gideon Hay still writes uh, the biography of Wasim Akram. You have uh, Richard Cashman writing about India or uh, Scaled Berry writing about India. You don't get so many books about uh, England or Australia written by the Indians or Pakistanis or Sri Lankans because it is not done. Historically, it has always been the other way, and that's a legacy of uh, whatever happened in the past.
1: On the other hand, I mean, if you look at... I think there has been, and it's, it's mainly in the last quarter century, a, an emergence of a generation, you're one of them, of really distinguished uh, historians of Indian cricket. I'm just thinking of our great friend Mihir Bose, who, 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 wonderful book, Graham Guha, enormous scholarly work, Prashant Kidami. I mean, so you, what you have now got is a really serious um, cricket literature emerging from India.
2: Yes, uh, but there is a small caveat and that may be very uncomfortable to uh, hear. And, and this book is not about being comfortable. Uh, so um, the Indian cricket Indian cricket writers or even the Pakistani cricket writers or the Caribbean cricket writers, they are appreciated definitely, but if they stay in the corner of their foreign field hmm. or beyond the boundary. You know, yeah, right, So yes. you never have uh, Indian cricketers writing about England. And I'll tell you, uh, one particular uh, reviewer, uh, in general, the reviews of this book has been really good. But one particular reviewer, he was quite laudatory about the book, but he said that, did we really need that lecture on Anthony Eden and the f- f- subsequent fibles of the British uh, domestic policies and so on? So I'm writing about decolonization, and I cannot write about decolonization unless I touch upon Eden and and the subsequent policies of uh, Wilson, uh, Macmillan, and Heath. I cannot write. But uh, it is still not really very common for uh, any Indian writer to really write about the British domestic policies. Now, just... uh, Think if uh, Richard Cashman or any other Western author, you two are also authors who have written about Pakistan. Would you ever uh, receive this criticism that uh, did the subcontinent really need this lecture about domestic policies? No.
1: Well, yeah, I remember when, when um, just to drop a note, when Imran Khan launched Richard and my book on Pakistan cricket history, mm-hmm. uh, he said this book should have been written by a Pakistani. That's the first thing he said. So we we got, a, we got a spot. He was very nice and turned up, but we did get a small kicking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure he meant that as a criticism of you for intruding into Pakistan's cricket history. I think it was a sort of a compliment to the book that we'd actually delved into areas that Pakistani writers were unwilling to get into. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, I think he meant it. I think he meant it more as a compliment than as criticism. But we can take it. You, you, know, you can take it either way. What we did in both of our books, and without I think without much inhibition, is to wade into Pakistan the you know, issues outside of cricket, the um you know, the social, economic, and political history of Pakistan as a backdrop to Pakistan cricket. Perhaps um and I think we we're accepted, both our books are accepted on that basis. Um, but perhaps, as Oren says, we're allowed to do it, you know, as, um, as English visitors in a way that um, uh, Asian writers are not encouraged to write about um, English social, economic and political history.
1: I would make an exception for Mihir Bose. I mean, I, Mihir's mm. writing about race and cricket, particularly mm. a part of the British establishment, was very path-breaking and he's been doing it for a long time.
2: Yeah, and also the only biography of an uh, Anglo-Australian cricketer written by a person of Indian origin. That's also Mihil Bose's biography of Keith Miller. Mm-hmm. You know? So, I mean, there have been others, but they have not been recognized. So, yeah.
1: Mm.
0: Let's, let's move on to the cricket from, uh, for a mm-hmm. moment, because it was such a... a an exciting summer of cricket 1971 the or the indian half of it and the the earlier the pakistan um half of it too but let's move on to that um, indian tour um very different kind of manager comes out uh, of the indian team um colonel adikari um comes over in your book very different from his predecessor and all his predecessors were pretty deferential to the english establishment yeah uh um, Adhikari had a sort of will to win, didn't he? And um, uh, he and Wadikar really didn't take any, didn't, uh, you know, allow this inferiority complex to um, inhibit them at all, didn't they? Uh,
2: no. Uh, I mean, uh, it's not only the Indian managers of the past, even the Pakistani managers of uh, 1971 that I talked about. Uh, they were, um, like, uh, quite differential, as you say, uh, we are here to learn from you, you are to, here to know from you or learn cricket from you, learn other things from you. But uh, Adhikari was uh, an army man. Uh, that was uh, one point that uh, needs to be noted. He was an army man and uh, of the Indian army after independence and uh, he was a strict disciplinarian and he has a reputation of being quite a strategist. You know, and uh, Take and going into strategies which are not like not the norm you know going and taking some uh, offbeat strategies like his uh, encounters with Lala Amarnath. Uh, Lala Amarnath used to uh, lead the southern Punjab team and Adhikari used to lead the services team because he was from the military during the Ranji Trophy encounters. Uh, they are quite uh, legendary and uh, he used to marshal uh, relatively weak service team with a lot of strategies which he implemented, sometimes taking a leaf of Don Bradman's book and uh going down the order to combat the wet uh, wicket and so on. So he was uh, somebody who wanted to win and he was a disciplinary and he put a lot of uh onus on fielding you know so uh Indian fielding was uh, never really uh sorry shining uh mark on their team so so um Adhikari was quite uh, finicky about fielding, fitness, and so on. So uh, some of the cricketers uh, they did not really like this attitude, so, and uh, we have reports of uh, Prasanna really sulking during the tour. But uh, yeah, but it, it really paid off. But then again, I mean, <laughs> strategy and managers and captains they can only affect the results this much so the next time in 74 it was a completely different story the same pair came but it was a completely different story
1: so it does strike me the comparison between wadaka in 1971 and um arjuna ralantonga for for sri lanka his captaincy marked the moment when a kind of post-colonial deference was replaced re- was replaced by a magnificent self-assertion and Ronald Tonga obviously had brilliant players, but he marshalled them and he enabled them, and he stood up for them, like morally when he faced that sort of umpiring attack by Daryl Hare. And I think you can see the same with Wadaka, uh, you know, 25 years before, an extraordinary um, composure. and of course, he enabled genius players, above all, of course, that wonderful spinner, Chandrazeka.:
2: Yes. And about uh, the spinners. Uh, it was quite a brave decision to play Bedi, Chandra and Venkat and not Prasanna, and that was uh, mainly because uh, Prasanna had got injured in the uh, during the West Indies tour, and uh, Venkat took that opportunity and he was extremely successful, and uh, he was uh, Venkat was made the vice captain, and uh, Prasanna was the only bowler in the team who had more than hundred wickets. And uh, there is a tendency to take the take his place for granted. There was the tendency, which was uh, quite apparent in the interviews that he gave uh, after returning from the uh, England tour. He was not very happy that he had been overlooked. But uh, the captain and the coach, they had a plan. And uh, there was Bedi bowling from one side who was a master of flight, master of loop. Uh, there was Chandrasekhar who could be quite unpredictable, but he was a match winner, as is, as he showed in the last uh, test match.
1: Glorious. And... I So almost every ball of that, because I've looked at it since, I, yeah. what glorious, marvellous. Yeah. He would have reinvented the art of spin bowling, didn't he? A bit like Murali later on, he had a slight disability, which gave him that extra
2: polios. Uh, Some people uncharitably say that even he did not know what his deliveries were going to do, but that's not really the case. He was a wonderful man as well. And uh, this, uh, with Bedi and uh, Chandrasekhar, the think tank, they wanted a bowler who would bowl according to a plan and who would keep it tight. And Venkat was the bowler who didn't flight the ball as much. And uh, Prasanna, it was difficult to give him those instructions uh, and uh, expect him to follow them because he was uh, more used to buying buying wickets. Mm-hmm. And as far as fitness was concerned, Venkat was way, way ahead. You know, He was a brilliant closing fielder and he kept fit and uh, Prasanna had uh, fallen way back in the fitness department. So uh, that was um, the main reason why this uh, brave decision was made. And as far as Chandrasekhar is concerned, you know, he was the one who won the match for India. Like, England were on top at the Oval Mm. for three days and uh, it was only that post-lunch spell of bowling by Chandrasekhar which really turned the table. And uh, till that time, till that time in the tour, uh, he hadn't really had uh, very good test matches. You know, so... uh, on the eve of the Oval Test match, there was the chance of him being sidelined—not Venkat, who was who had been brilliant, but him being sidelined for Prasanna. They would have, they could have played Prasanna, Venkat, and Bedi instead of uh, picking Chandrasekhar. But uh, thankfully, that didn't happen. So yeah, it was a brave decision, and it, it it came off.
0: The other big decision they made on that tour, which is very important, wasn't it? Was um... Recalling engineer from uh, to the side and getting his release from from Lancashire where he was playing was me. Engineer makes a big difference. Was personality. He's an extrovert. He's very confident. He made a big difference with the bat, didn't he? He made every time he went to the wicket into to the crease in that series. They put on 50 together. He put on 50 with his partner, and he, he was a pretty good wicket keeper as well to particularly you know, to spinners he hadn't kept to very much in um, in the previous few years.
2: Yeah, I mean, he had been a regular, but uh, what happened was um, uh, he did not go to West Indies. He did not go to West Indies. Uh, Krishnamurti kept in West Indies. And that was because the Indian uh, selection, well, selectors had a policy that you had to play a certain amount of domestic cricket. Uh, before you got selected, and what engineer uh, did was, he was uh, chosen to play for the World Eleven in the summer. Uh, he played for the World Eleven, and um, so he did not play that um, the stipulated amount of domestic cricket. You know, the South African tour was cancelled, and England hosted the World Eleven.
1: Yeah, that brilliant World Eleven. You know, with Sobers and Barlow yeah. and Prox. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Coming in at number nine, <laughs> I think he did. It was absolutely miserable for Bolus to face a great batsman like Engineer at that number in the batting order.
2: So uh, he was not selected to, for the West Indian tour because of that, because of this policy. But uh, they reversed the policy for England, and uh, one of the reasons was that he was playing for Lancashire and uh, he knew the conditions, and he was uh, he was more than a decent batsman. So, uh, yeah, that was one of the reasons. And uh, he had not kept to Peji Chandrasekhar in recent past, but he did have a fairly good idea of uh, keeping to them because in 67, he was actually keeping to these four bowlers uh, when India had toured England and uh, also in the subsequent test matches.
0: Engineer is the, the last Parsi to have played for India, isn't he? Yes. He had his last test in 1974, and there hasn't been one since.
2: Yes, um, it's quite sad because uh, the Parsis were the first uh, first community to take to cricket in India. And they were the, they had the first teams to come to England. The Parsis in 1886 and 1888, they were the first to come to England. And even when Vernon's team and Lord Hawk's team, the first teams, and even Cecil Headlam's team, the first few teams that went to India, the Parsis were the only competing side who even beat these teams, defeated these teams. So Parsis had a long tradition, and they had uh, quite a few good, very good cricketers later, and even Nari contracted the captain, and uh, so on. But uh, the problem is nowadays uh, the Parsi community is uh, declining, I, they in numbers. You know, it's and uh, there is not that. Uh, uh, very uh, in last uh, in the last decade, Nari Contractor actually made the statement that uh, there is not the assembly line that uh, used to produce these cricketers, and it's uh, it's in a state of decline. In the previous tour
0: in 1967, there had been there were five faiths represented in, in the Indian tour party. Yeah, And that's something that's that sort of multi faith um, teams kind of disappeared from Indian cricket, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean. Uh... There have been quite a few uh, Muslim cricketers. Even now, there is Siraj and all that. Uh, so mm. the Binis and um, so the Christians and uh, they have played, but uh, and obviously Harbhajan and uh, Sarandeep Singh, Navjot Singh Sidhu. Mm. You know, so all the six. But uh, the, yeah, the Parsis have really died out. You
1: know? When was the last Who is was which Christians? played for india uh,
2: there was roger binney and his son Stuart binney played uh, very recently in uh, 2014. all oh,
0: right and, like
1: uh, i didn't know that yeah. they were Christian. i i must say that one of the many reasons for esteeming Kohli so very highly as a indian captain i i just love that man actually was the way he stood up for he stood up stood up for his muslim cricketers he wouldn't have yeah,
2: absolutely yeah uh, sami and that yeah he did uh, we have uh, had quite a few muslim cricketers playing even now like uh, sami and siraj
1: in the current environment that's that took some courage i think
2: yes uh, moral stature. yes definitely definitely did uh, in the current environment uh, yeah it's uh, it's not uh, the environment we grew up in you know yeah. so it's it's been uh, drastically it's changed drastically i don't uh, quite identify uh, india anymore that way it's it's, a,
1: it's an increasingly um, somber theme. Uh, this, uh, Arun. how does it play out in? Do you know in in Britain? I mean, when you know Indian and Pakistani fans, do they do they support England against the visiting Indians or the visiting Pakistanis, or or how do they get on these days?
2: They are supposed to support England, right? Uh, because of the now visit. I don't
1: think anybody thinks that, <laughs> that apart from Norman <laughs> Tebbit. What is interesting is that whether the communal differences and Hindutva tendency is spreading into sort of the relations between Indian and Pakistani cricket fans here in Britain.
2: See, the way it uh, takes place is uh, there are always some extremist fundamentalist uh, mindset. So if you, and they are there in every particular uh, group of people, every community, and uh, if you take them into account, yes, uh, there will be a distinct uh, antipathy towards the Pakistanis, or if if it is a very rigid uh, Pakistani, he will be supporting anyone who plays against India. But generally, uh, like the cricket fans that I have interacted with, they generally put up an united united front in the sense that uh, yes, if uh, India is playing Pakistan, there is no issue. Everybody knows who one is supporting. But uh, against England, I think uh, there are a lot of uh, Indians who will support Pakistan against England, and uh, there are a lot of Pakistanis who will support India. So. It depends on the mindset. And unfortunately, there are more and more these uh, hardcore mindsets that we've come across in the current world. And uh, that is um, that is an unfortunate turn of events. And that's both in Britain and in the respective countries. Um, but uh, the general cricket fan, without these sort of um, like tendencies, they will, I guess, uh, support uh, India against England and Pakistan against England. Uh, that's what I have seen in, in general. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'd like to drop a name at this point from that 1971 tour. Um, Peter and I had a very, very good encounter with Abid Ali um, mm. some years ago on a cricket tour. We went to, organized by Mihai Bose, uh, we went um, coast to coast uh, in the United States. And uh, we met. We um, here recruited Ahmed Ali when we were massively defeated in our first match, largely <laughs> by a team of um, expatriates from the subcontinent. And he was a great addition to our party and um, the best coach I've ever encountered. Um, uh, he became a, a, a cricket coach. Um, but he told us quite a bit about the 71 um, tour and especially something you mentioned in your book he was um he was very pleased with the manager um Kenwarda for getting the daily allowance raised to 3 pounds yeah from 1 pound um which on the previous tour which left the indian players you know starving and cold
2: yeah i mean uh, they couldn't afford the sweaters uh, the jumpers and sometimes uh, the they had to survive on bread and butter you know so uh, yeah, that's that's how they like uh, forget the colonial yoke and all that. Uh, they were on the back foot even before uh, the English bowlers started bowling at them. But to them, but um, in 1971, it was extended to three pounds, and they got better hotels and even uh, yeah. So um, it was uh, much better at that time. Now uh, when you talk about Abid Ali, uh, He was quite an important cricketer and in that uh, mix, uh, like uh, for the balance of the side, both him and Solka. Uh, Incidentally, India and Pakistan were about to square off in the war. And uh, there were a few cricketers, Pakistani cricketers who were professionals for Surrey. After the oval test got over, these two cricketers like Eunice Ahmed and uh, Indika Balam uh, they actually joined the Indian celebrations, and Abid Ali actually invited uh, Zayed Abbas. He was his friend, mm-hmm. and uh, so as far as the cricket is concerned, I mean, people got along. You know, people got along uh, even though the war was taking place. And that winter, during the time of the conflict, during the time that the actually guns were firing across borders, Australia hosted the World Eleven. Because uh, the South African tour was cancelled, 1971-72, and uh, Gavaskar, Bedi and Engineer they played alongside Intigabalam, Zahir Abbas, and I think uh, Asif Masood. You no, know? so uh, the players were in excellent terms with each other. Like it was only the countries that were at war.
1: It's uh, so lovely to hear all of that, I and mean, I didn't know any of it, but the at the time when Pakistan and India were squaring up for a very ugly, terrible war, um, that the players, would, the Pakistan, several Pakistan players, joined the Indians to celebrate that victory at the Oval.
0: What a thing. Yes. Yes. Orin, um, you open your book with uh, the story of Bella, the elephant who actually appeared at the Oval on the last day of that victory and perhaps helped to inspire it. Bella as you point out, wasn't just a cute mascot and a sort of cliched symbol of India, was she? Um, She had a, um, a religious and a political significance too. Would you like to tell us something about that?
2: Yeah, sure. so Bella was the two-year-old Asian elephant uh, who was uh, loaned from the Chessington Zoo and brought to the ground. And the reason for that was uh, it was also the festival of Ganesh Chaturthi, And Ganesh is the elephant-headed god And he is equated with uh, removing the obstacles from the path of success. And uh, so Bella was brought to the ground and uh, to the believers, it worked because uh, the obstacles towards the win, all of that was removed. Um, That was, um, yes, um, that was the connection with Bella. But uh, historically, Ganesh Chaturthi, it did play a role in the independence movement as well of india so the initial uh, independence movement started uh, like started long back but the official congress party of india was formed in 1885 and they were educated lawyers who wrote very sober petitions to the british um, like uh, colonial uh, rulers and uh, educated indians right uh, no one quite liked them and even now uh, no one quite likes them in so they were the petitions were all uh, ignored so there was this uh, freedom fighter called uh, balganga the tilak who was uh, quite fed up with this uh, petitioning and being overlooked and so he chose this ganesh chaturthi this festival to really uh, move the people the masses to this freedom movement and so uh, that was in 1894 or 1895 And uh, so Ganesh Chaturthi played a role in uh, moving people towards the independence movement. So there is nothing uh, like, it's just an allegory that um, the elephant comes to the ground and it uh, on the occasion of the Ganesh Chaturthi it was an auspicious occasion. And uh, that was also used as one of the freedom movements. It It is not that Bela was brought because of that. But there is this connection. And then elephants from, uh, like whenever you talk about India from the Western point of view, it's always, uh, the elephant always plays a role, like from octopacy or uh, any other, uh, uh, for example, Big Bang Theory, all the modern serials, uh, soaps, everywhere. You talk about India, there's the elephant bride and prejudice. And unfortunately, even, uh, Yorkshire where uh, the Pakistani cricketers are called elephant washers mm-hmm. <laughs> so That's, it does play a role
0: Aaron, it's been wonderful talking to you not just about Bella but about the, um, the your entire book and, uh, its, and its rich content and um, thank you very very much for joining us
2: thank you
1: thank you very much Aaron. we learned a great deal from this learned and very moving conversation thank you